Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Exactly. So there is one particular patient that we both had in common, but this actually pertains to quite a few lately now, thanks to COVID. Um, and I thought this little caption was cute because uh, administrators and other people like to think of us as, you know, little nurse bots. So my nursing friends will appreciate that. Um, just a little bit about patient selection, of course, is key to success. Uh, early intervention is the key to, to a successful outcome, and um, appropriate patient selection must always be evaluated by the entire team. And remembering that ECMO is a bridge to recovery, not a bridge to the unknown or non-recoverable, which I think has really been tested uh, this last 12 to 14 months. We've had numerous conversations about this. Uh, the sooner the therapy is initiated, the sooner the patient is ready to come off and do well. That was kind of before we were tested uh, this past year with COVID patients. And uh, it's our responsibility as patient advocates to ensure we speak up early and encourage intervention when it's appropriate. It's also our responsibility as patient advocates to ensure we speak up and ensure that inappropriate patients are not considered for therapy. I think nurses have a huge role in this because we're there all the time. And I'm not trying to downplay the rest of our, you know, team members, but, you know, the physicians swoop in for a short period of time. They look to them for a lot of direction. But as far as who really develops a lot of the trust with the family and having those difficult conversations when you spend more time with them, it does kind of fall on us at the bedside to kind of be that person in between to say to them, hey, if we do this, yes, we can do it, but it may not necessarily be the best thing. So kind of puts us in a little bit of a difficult situation more than once. Uh, nursing and perfusion collaboration Again, ECMO patients are a collaboration of expertise and care between nursing, perfusion, and the critical care team. We're responsible as bedside nurses for managing the patient care responsibilities just as you do with any other critically ill ICU patient. And I put this sentence in here and then afterwards I'm reading it now and it kind of sounds like it's downplaying a little bit. I said perfusion is responsible for managing the pump and the circuit, which is not true at all because the next sentence, Together, we each bring a unique skill set and knowledge base to collaborate and provide the best possible patient outcome. And we collaborate and, and find a fine balance. This has kind of been a thing with, you know, our traditional ECMO patients before of optimal anticoagulation with minimal bleeding risk to our patients. But lately, and what we've seen with the COVID, especially with the surgeon that I'm working with, is now kind of pushing outside the comfort zone. And, not running anticoagulation with these uh, COVID patients to prevent adverse outcomes. Patient goals, of course, again, this therapy is a bridge to recovery, not a bridge to the unknown or nowhere, which I think we really, every single one of us has to ask ourselves before we even consider having this conversation with a family. The biggest challenge recently has been everybody on the internet looking up COVID yeah. mm -hmm. and coming to you and going, 
I want my family member on ECMO. Why aren't you putting them on ECMO? And having that conversation with them as to why their family member is not a candidate for it. And um, it's tough because mm. how do you tell somebody that, you know, whether it's you BMI don't want to be on ECMO. or, okay. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And that plus what do you do when, you know, think about a hospital that doesn't provide it. Mm -hmm. Because there are way more hospitals that do not have ECMO than do have ECMO. Mm -hmm. And now is not the time to throw an ECMO together and just start doing ECMO. Mm -hmm. We all know how that's going to yeah. play out. Sorry. So again, th there has to be a recoverable or salvageable condition. <clears throat> Families have to have realistic expectations and daily updates with patient progress or lack thereof so that if we have to talk to them about withdrawing, it doesn't come as a surprise. Families must remain informed with honest and realistic updates with progression of care and nursing and perfusion are the constant point of contact for family members as we're both at the patient's bedside at all times. Again, just because we can doesn't always mean we should utilize this therapy, but we've all been tested this last year and really trying to differentiate and have that conversation and being bombarded. And, you know, we've recently gotten calls for, you know, debilitated patients that three weeks on a ventilator and now a family member is you know, come out of the woodwork and they've looked up on the internet about this thing called ECMO and why isn't my family member on it and trying to have that conversation with them about how it's not an option because they can't live on that for forever is, yeah. is tough. Um, I wanted to go kind of a little bit into, you know, patient autonomy and thinking about having that conversation with patients and family members and really what patient autonomy is. We talk about autonomy a lot in our practice as healthcare providers, but remembering that patients have autonomy as well. Uh, they have a right to informed consent. Of course, when we're having this conversation, most of the time these patients are capable of making those decisions for themselves. So do they have a surrogate decision maker? And then the next biggest question is, will their surrogate decision maker honor their wishes? which uh, I'd say probably eight times out of 10 is not what happens. Really? Mm -hmm. It doesn't line up, huh? Mm -hmm. wow. It does not line up at all. Because emotion gets involved. So but how do you know what their wishes were if the only person telling you is the person lying? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so we've had cases where you'll see copies of advanced directives uh -huh. and in the moment, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. um, again, yeah. Our particular patient um, yeah. that we had in common had a do not resuscitate, um, had ALS, mm -hmm. rescinded it for a surgical procedure. Right. I remember that. Yep. yep. And so then, again, you have the surrogate who is in shock with, they arrested in um, PECU and guilt, wanting more time. It's just mm -hmm. not ready to make that decision. But the decision had really already been made mm -hmm. by the patient themselves. Mm -hmm. But they're not able to speak for themselves anymore. Correct. Right. 
So again, will their surrogate advocate for them when their cases, uh, when their care is futile? So I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the um, ANA's seven ethical principles that you know nurses should abide by. First of which, justice. Nurses are fair. Just kind of go over some definitions of legal terminology. Um, justice nurses are fair when they distribute care among a group of patients. Non-maleficence, an obligation to do no harm to a patient. Beneficence, doing good and the right thing for the patient. An obligation to act for the benefit of the patient, including preventing harm or removing conditions that will cause harm. Accountability, accepting all professional and personal consequences that can occur as a result of your actions. Fidelity, being faithful and true to your professional responsibilities by providing high-quality, safe care in a competent manner. Again, sometimes this gets a little tough, and having that conversation with, this really isn't the right thing to do just because we can. Autonomy, encouraging patients to make their own decisions without any judgments or coercion from nursing. And veracity, being completely honest and truthful with patients very tough thing to do because you're saying things that they don't want to hear and sometimes you're the only one that will speak openly and honestly with them and I think nursing has a huge role especially when it becomes a conversation about withdrawal of care or why we really shouldn't go on when somebody's insistent um, and that's more for the ones that, you know, you're two, three weeks in, and now you're getting a phone call, and hey, they want to go on, and... And whether it be ECMO, which we're talking about, <clears throat> whether it be that, here, I'll stand here, so I'll be in the camera view. Um, whether we're talking about ECMO, or whether we're talking about having surgery, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't really matter what the therapy is. It could be any therapy. It could be transplant. It could be... Um, whether to do dialysis, it can be really anything. And we talked about this earlier, and I, I'm, of course I'm really interested in hearing about the individual patient, but we discussed it from our perspective in that we generally don't, perfusionists don't necessarily spend their time in the ICU, in the critical care unit, where you have a critical care patients, right? Um, and so it's such a difference for us now because we're interacting way more and our roles have our, our involvement has really changed but nursing has changed too mm -hmm. there was a time in nursing when that what you're discussing right now did not happen mm -hmm. it has really changed mm -hmm. a lot would you agree with that absolutely mm -hmm. so please forgive me go on uh Talking about withholding versus withdrawal. <clears throat> Again, what excludes a patient for ECMO? There's no standardized, you know, ELSO's got some criteria, but, you know, even in the past 12 months, there's nothing that's come out. And we have these conversations about, well, patient's BMI, patient's age, patient comorbid conditions. It's really provider driven as to whether they push the envelope and put these patients on. Um, 
I would like to see some, hopefully, out of this, some sort of standardized inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, be established in the near future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Wouldn't that be helpful? Yes. It would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, it, it really would. And uh, again, withholding therapy, if it's not medically or ethically appropriate, um, is perceived as ethically justified. N not an easy thing to sit there and talk to a family member about, because when it's your loved one, you don't care about mm -hmm. ethics, and all yeah. you see is mm -hmm. your loved one mm -hmm. and you wanting them, you know, more time with them. And again, then when it becomes a discussion of withdrawal of existing treatment can be perceived as an ethical dilemma because it involves discontinuing existing treatment, whereas withholding seems to be an okay thing that's not given as much pushback. And at my previous job, I also served on the ethics committee and was called in on a particular patient very early on in uh, the beginning of this that was on for by the time we got the phone call for the consult he'd been on 30 days and you know CRT the whole time his kidneys were gone his liver was gone his you know his lungs were destroyed he was you know positive COVID and flu at the beginning of it and Family was just insistent on not withdrawing care despite numerous providers over and over and over telling them the same thing. And um, I think that utilizing a neutral person like an ethics committee to come in that's been somebody outside of the everyday because there was a lot of hostility in the room from the family towards the providers because they just felt as though, well, he doesn't have insurance and you're just saying I have to take him off now because, you know. It's been too long. It's been too long. Yeah. And so, you know, I had to come in and be the one to sit down with all of them and say, if this was just one organ, we could talk about where he's going to go from here. But we can't give him lungs, we can't give him a liver, and we can't give him kidneys. We can't give him all of those. And just hearing that from somebody that hasn't been involved in his care, it took another 24 more hours, but ultimately they finally decided to withdraw. But in the meantime, it was 30 days worth of exhausting resources, the blood bank, the, you know, care, the between perfusion, nursing, all of it. Um, and ultimately when they finally decided to withdraw, I mean, he immediately within a couple of minutes was gone. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that had been the case for a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. which is two things from that. It, it's a remarkable testament to how well we can essentially keep somebody warm versus alive and I think that what also got, gets missed frequently is, along with all the resources you just discussed, the demoralization mm -hmm. of the entire team managing those patients. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have to talk about resource allocation and futility. Again, nursing and fellow clinicians should not hesitate to speak up and express concerns about the wasting of precious resources. We had a conversation as the ethics committee, as a sidebar, talking about forming a separate 
COVID committee, because at the beginning of all of this, there was concern what happens when we're out of ventilators and BiPAP machines and ICU beds. And, um, and again, it was kind of tough because our typical ethics committee is a varied group of people and even a couple of community members. And we didn't really want to put them in that position of honestly, frankly discussing, yeah, we're not going to intubate this patient because they likely are not going to survive and we need that ventilator for somebody else who would. And thank goodness we never had to actually deploy that team because it all made us all uncomfortable even though we knew that, again, just because we can do something we shouldn't. Um, but I'm curious as to how many other places, you know, how many other facilities if they kind of did the same thing or used their existing ethics committee and how they approach that. Um, again, how do we establish a guideline to determine futility with ECMO patients? I think with COVID, you know, H1N1, we saw that come in and it was, you know, three, four months of intense resources using, you know, putting all these patients on, running out of perfusionists, running out of ECMO machines, all that other stuff. Whereas COVID, we haven't had a break. It's just nonstop. And um, as you guys were saying earlier, how do you tell somebody, I can realistically see it coming up, that we're out of equipment because it almost happened at the current facility when we needed to put another patient on and we were out of machines at ICU beds. So it became a thought of, which one of these people are we going to go to and tell them now's the time? Mm -hmm. And then you have the collateral damage, yeah. which I think gets missed in all of this. Um, we said it earlier, no place on earth has unlimited resources. Yeah. And there's two uh, fundamental dilemmas. The dilemma A is, are we going to run out of resources to where all that we have is now consumed by these, this patient population, and here is now walking in, rolling in, as the case may be, the perfect candidate, and we simply do not have anything left mm -hmm. for what is now the perfect candidate. Very difficult uh, dilemma to be in. And then the collateral damage associated with that, where you have all of these patients who are now unable to come to the hospital for treatable diseases and they get delayed care and a treatable disease becomes a malignancy mm -hmm. and uh, or a terminal illness or a catastrophic heart attack or whatever it may be. There's some very, uh, it's just reality. It's this harsh reality in any healthcare system, no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. And I've really found that here lately, I really want to drive home the point that it is a collaboration between nursing and um, perfusion because you get to know these patients, the family members, they trust you. And, you know, a lot of them will finally look at you and go, is this time? We've had that recently with uh, a young man. <coughs> and it finally kind of gave the family a little bit of peace. And they were like, no, this, they made the decision, didn't have to put us in that position of saying we're going to stop this they said 
stop. It's just a tough spot. And I think you were talking about PTSD. I don't think any of us even like realize because none of us have decompressed yeah. as to what you know we're really going to feel like six mm -hmm. months from now. Or oh, absolutely. I don't think any, I think this will have lasting effects. Mm -hmm.